History. History. Through the eyes of those who lived it. This is Hometown Heroes. Presented on the air and online by Provident Payments. Proudly honoring the men and women whose service and sacrifice have secured our freedom. Now, the host of Hometown Heroes, Paul Leffler. Welcome to another edition of Hometown Heroes, the program that reminds you no matter where you live in this great country of ours, no matter how big or how small your hometown might be, there are stories there that should not go untold. What we've learned, of course, is that they don't have to go untold as long as some of us are willing to take a little initiative and ask a few questions, and then most importantly, to listen patiently as memories from long ago take on new meaning in the here and now. Our aim has always been, first and foremost, to honor our veterans for their service and sacrifice. We want to preserve their stories so the rest of us never forget the price that's been paid for our freedom. And in that process, not only are we educated, not only are we entertained, but so often we find ourselves inspired by these stories from our greatest generation. And we heard quite a story last time from 98-year-old Dan Doherty of Fairfield, California. We had to do something we don't do too frequently here on Hometown Heroes, carry that conversation over to a second episode today because even though Dan took us through his experiences as a teenage BAR gunner in the 44th and later 45th Infantry Divisions, including the story behind his Purple Heart, and even though he took us almost all the way to VE Day, there's something he experienced a little more than a week before the German surrender that has influenced so many of his memories and ultimately so many of his activities since then. This weekend just so happens to mark International Holocaust Remembrance Day, so it's fitting that we'll get to hear from one of the last people still with us who was there for the liberation of Dachau Concentration Camp. Dan has written extensively about his experience there, and I have some of that thorough and excellent work posted for you at hometownheroesradio.com, where you can also find photos of the two gold star heroes in his family. One uncle made the ultimate sacrifice in World War I before Dan was born, and another on the first day of World War II for America. On Sunday, December 7th, we were sitting in our living room, and the radio comes on about Pearl Harbor. And the first thing they announced was that the Arizona had been hit. Mm. Well, my dad's brother, we knew, was on the Arizona. Mm. And uh, my dad's face just turned white. And, and uh, he went down on the Arizona. And so from that just changed everything because I was then about a freshman in high school. I was 16. So everything was geared toward knowing that I would go, be going into the Army and uh, when I graduated in 43. You mentioned December 7th, 1941. And I've interviewed over a 1,000 World War II veterans, and almost everyone has a memory of that day but very few a memory like yours. Yeah. I mean, this is your uncle, and, and I'm assuming that you had spent some time with him. I'll tell you, he, we were from Minnesota. He, was, he had joined the Navy in World War I mm. and stayed in and made it a career. And so when you're in Minnesota and he's in the Navy, you don't see him very often. But I only remember him one time, but he stopped through seeing his brothers is either about 39 or 40. I think he was maybe changing ships or what the occasion was. But he sat down with me and he told me what he did. He fired the guns on the Arizona. And he showed me how 
things would go back and forth, and when it was just right, he turned the key. And so I knew him just from that one little interview, but I remember very well exactly where we were sitting when he told us about it. So I hardly knew him, but I, I knew enough so that the moment we heard it, we knew uh, it's interesting. We've always assumed he went down on the Arizona, but it turns out there was there's a mass grave of about a hundred or so sailors from the Arizona who were buried in Hawaii. Mm -hmm. And they're now doing a DNA yeah. on all those things. And our son up in uh, Seattle has given his DNA for them. So they're checking to see if by any chance he's one of those. But otherwise we would uh, we just assumed that he was on the ship and, and when he hit, went, went down, but... Uh, and what was his name? His name was Ralph Doherty. And have you been there to the Arizona Memorial? I've been there, and his name's up on the wall, Ari Doherty. And uh, another, his, one of his, my dad's brothers was graduated from West Point in 1917 and went right overseas as part of the American Expeditionary Force. And he was killed commanding a battalion of the 3rd Division in the middle of Octo October 15th, 1918, just three weeks before the armistice. So when the armistice occurred, his family thought he was alive. Mm. And after the armistice, they got the telegram. So it was especially painful. And I, I knew that. And so toward the end of World War II, uh, I and everybody else was doing everything we could to, to stay alive because we didn't want to be a victim in the last week or so of the war. Wow. Just based on your own family's experience. So maybe you heard a little bit of that last time, but that gives us the backdrop for the final weeks of the war in Europe. Dan had been wounded in the foot, but returned to the front with Company C of the 157th Regiment, 45th Infantry Division. On April 15th, we end up at Nuremberg, and we have it surrounded. Three divisions, the 42nd Division, the 3rd Division, and the 45th. Anybody but Hitler had been in charge, they would have surrendered the city. Instead, they defended it, and so the first day, we just sat on the bluffs and watched the Army Air Corps planes routinely dive-bomb the city over and over again, all day long. When we left Nuremberg, it was just total rubble. Like, I've got pictures of it. There's just nothing standing. Four days later, the three divisions, in effect, met in the center of town, and uh, that was the 20th of April. And... Uh, to find a place to sleep that night, we had to hike all the way back out into the suburbs to find a building that was standing. And we got a day or two of rest, and then they dispatched the 45th and the 42nd Division towards Munich. Mm -hmm. The goal is to get there as soon as possible so as to deny the Germans an opportunity to organize a defense like they had at Nuremberg. And so by this time, they. German military effort is collapsing. This is the middle of April, or 20th of April. The war ends May 8th. And so we're riding tanks and tank destroyers most every day just to keep up. And on the 26th of April, we come to the Danube. And I have my letter 
that I wrote to my parents because we had to, all the bridges are blown and we're waiting for ducks, for the army to bring ducks up to take us across. So I say in my letter that here I am humming the Daniel Waltz, <laughs> looking at the Daniel. And then I added, I'm not supposed to tell you where I am, but our lieutenant never reads the mail. <laughs> well, what I, what I was referring to was at Nuremberg, Edward Wilkin, who was serving as our platoon guide, was shot, killed, and I became platoon guide. And one of the first tasks that the lieutenant gave me, he says, Dan, I don't want to be censoring the mail anymore. He, he had to read the letters we were sending home and then seal them up and, and censor them if necessary and sign the envelopes and think. He said, you just signed my name. And then, so for the last three weeks of the war, I was signing Lieutenant Penny's name on the envelope. Well, I, my mother saves all my letters and she saved the envelopes. <laughs> but not remembering this, I threw all the envelopes away one day. Oh, no. I, I had envelopes in which I had written Penny's name in my handwriting. Well, and I'm just, you know, curious. At this point, had you or any of the men you're serving with, had you guys caught any wind of what was happening to the Jews and other prisoners? No, we. what we knew is occasionally we would get copies of uh, Stars and Stripes and and then there occasionally you would receive from home maybe a condensed version of Time magazine or something. But you're busy doing other stuff. And by that time, some of the camps had been liberated, but we hadn't really any understanding of it. I'll tell you, on we got across the Danube. That was quite an experience because we got halfway across the Danube and the engine on our duck stopped. Well, the Danube is a very swiftly flowing river. And if you don't have any power, you just are literally a sitting duck. And we were just petrified. It took us took the engineer quite a while to get the engine going again. And he brought us across. There were about seven or eight of us in my duck. And I was the ranking sergeant. So I said, when we got across, I said, we're not going to just hike back up the river because they're moving so fast. So we went off at a right oblique, but we didn't find the 45th Division until the late afternoon of the next day. We'd, we'd gone so far. But on the evening of the 28th, I remember we slept in a woods. And the reason I remember that is by that time, we're almost demanding that we get to sleep in homes. And, and most of the time, if, if we weren't in some battle, we would be sleeping in some German home. But that night, we're just sleeping out. We hadn't seen a German all day. Nobody digs a foxhole. You just sleep. And in the morning, we come in to get our rations. And the commanding officer says, guys, gather around. I have to give you special orders. And I recall his saying what he did was alerting us to the fact that the division is in the vicinity of a concentration camp. And I recall his telling us that in the interest of the war crimes trials that were going to follow the war, it was very important that all witnesses be kept alive. Well, this meant nothing to us. We didn't know what a concentration camp was, literally. Mm -hmm. And besides, C Company, that's my office, was in reserve that day. And we have a very easy morning, stop and go. We'd walk and then stop, didn't see any Germans. But about one o'clock, 
we're stopped. Our platoon is stopped. And the runner comes from company headquarters. And I'm standing right there. And he says, C Company, that's us. C Company is going into a concentration camp to relieve I Company because I Company has gone berserk. That was a total message. Well, I Company's 3rd Battalion. We're C Company 1st Battalion. So we're being taken out of our section. And we have to hike over there. And it takes an hour or two. I recall we're approaching what turned out to be Dachau. Nobody mentioned the name. And it would have meant nothing anyhow. We didn't know. The term Dachau at that point wouldn't have meant anything except to Fred Abraham in my platoon, who was born and raised in Germany. And we're approaching on a road from the southwest. And on our immediate left, paralleling the road, is a single railway track. And up ahead, we see there's a train sitting on the thing. We get up there. The doors to the train cars are open, and we make the horrifying discovery they contain just totally emaciated human bodies. I tell you, there's just no way to prepare yourself for that. And it, it, we just stand there and stare, and then we go to the next car and stare again. It turns out there were 39 boxcars with 2,310 corpses, which is about 60 bodies per car all mixed up in each. Life in those boxcars had just become zoos with people fighting for air and space and food and water. And these are the ones who, who didn't survive. At the time, we knew nothing about the origins of the train or what had happened, but we now know the whole story. And that train had left Buchenwald, was one of eight trains that had left Buchenwald the first week of April, headed for camps in the east. And there were almost 30,000 prisoners on those eight trains. Our train had left on April 7th with 4,500 prisoners jammed into 59 boxcars headed for Flossenburg, which is another major camp. But this is the final month of the war. The Allies have complete control of the air, and every day their planes are pounding away at the German railway facilities. So these trains are constantly being delayed and rerouted. And the train we think was heading for Flossenburg is rerouted along the way to Dachau. It's en route three weeks with very little in the way of food and thing. Between April 7th, it arrives at Dachau on April 28th. We come on April 29th. Of the 4,500 prisoners, the SS records show 816 survived. They must have just crawled off of that train. One guy survived and wrote, to, I have his book, and his book is a major story. He was a French army officer, and he, he had paper and pencil, and he kept track of the towns they went through. So they know the whole route of that train for the three weeks went down into Czechoslovakia and back into Germany. It's now known as the Buchenwald-Dachau death train. And Dan Doherty is one of the only people still with us today who saw the horror and inhumanity of it firsthand. It's time for our first break, but when we come back, a much different liberation experience. The very next day, after coming face-to-face with the unimaginable at Dachau, Dan was at its largest subcamp. And in this case, no deceased victims of the Holocaust, just survivors elated to see those young American GIs. Hometown Heroes will be right back after this. 
Hey, do you ever have those moments where you realize you've been settling for less than the best for way too long? Sometimes we just accept the status quo without looking around for better ways to do things. And I got to tell you, when it comes to your money, I think I've found a better way with EECU. Just take a look at myeecu.org and I think you'll see why. EECU is not a bank. It's a not-for-profit credit union that's all about taking care of you, the member. That's one of the reasons EECU just keeps growing and growing. Over 350,000 members now in 12 different California counties and access to more than 30,000 co-op ATMs and free online and mobile banking. But what I love most is how EECU always goes above and beyond to serve the community. A decade ago, the leadership and generosity of EECU helped establish Central Valley Honor Flight. By the end of this year, more than 1,800 veterans will have seen their memorials in Washington, D.C. for free. And that's just one example of the community involvement that EECU takes oh so seriously. Pick up the phone and become a member today. 1-800-538-3328. That's 1-800-538-3328. Proudly presented by Provident Payments, this is Hometown Heroes. Celebrating everyday Americans who answer the call of duty. Welcome back to Hometown Heroes. On a weekend in which the world observes Holocaust Remembrance Day, we're hearing from a man who couldn't possibly forget it. For nearly eight decades, 98-year-old Dan Doherty of Fairfield, California, has carried the memories of what he witnessed as a teenager with the 45th Infantry Division at the end of April 1945. When we left off, he was describing the Buchenwald-Dachau death train, originally headed for the Flossenburg concentration camp, but rerouted to Dachau. By the time it completed that three-week journey, more than 80% of the 4,500 prisoners aboard, all but 816 had perished along the way. That experience was what I company had come to. And then they had got there that morning and started immediately rounding up several hundred guards. Some of them had a difficult time handling their emotions. And there was a breakdown in discipline among some of the troops, officers, as well as enlisted men, during which a few dozen of the guards were killed without benefit of a trial. I never had known where we entered the camp. I was invited this last April to the 78th anniversary at at Dachau, and I had an opportunity to sit down with one of their research guys, and he showed me on a plot exactly where we had entered. We had followed I Company, the same thing, and... We had entered through an opening. It wasn't a gate. We didn't enter through the uh, a main gate. It was just kind of an opening. And at that at that opening, Lieutenant Penny, our platoon leader, said, "Okay, guys, fan out and look for guards." Well, in retrospect, you realize how silly this was. This is 25 acres. Hmm. <laughs> the compound, the dock, <laughs> yeah. and we're a platoon of maybe 20 guys. <laughs> Fan out over 25 acres. Well, fan out we did. Some of the guys went to the right, some went straight ahead, and I and a few others went to the left. We've just walked by 39 boxcars, and then I get into the turn to the left, and we come, and here's a whole bunch of corpses lying on the ground. 
and who's standing around looking at them? About a dozen civilian reporters. <laughs> the army knew where Dachau was, and in anticipation of the liberation, they had assembled this media group behind the lines. They've already brought them in. People are still looking for guards. <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, I, in retrospect, I never talked to any one of them. They were newspaper guides from all over the Allied world, Australia and South Africa and the United States. While we're there, one of our guys, I, I didn't see this, I was doing something else. One of these guys crawled over the corpses of the guards, cut off a finger, because he wanted the SS ring for a souvenir. And what I heard was one of the guards, one of the reporters like, hey, you can't do that. <laughs> well, he'd already done it. <laughs> I, I, I'm telling you this because you're not supposed to shoot unarmed prisoners of war with hands over their heads. So when they learned that something like that had happened at Dachau, there was an investigation. And we have the report and the report mentions that in the coal yard, there were 17 bodies and two of them had fingers missing. Mm -hmm. And I learned about five years ago, who got the second ring? <laughs> <laughs> it was a, a sar another sergeant in our, uh, our company. But I spent my entire time around the coal yard and just over the wall from it was the SS hospital for the SS. And I, I walked through that, it was all empty. I think I company went in there and just emptied it. We had guys out looking. There were all kinds of buildings. The guys had to go into all those buildings and search every room and make certain they weren't letting some guards get behind. And then it turns dark. Our platoon ends up spending the night in one of the homes that had housed one of the senior SS officers. Mm lovely flower gardens out in front and inside you had upholstered furniture uh, much nicer than just an ordinary thing we knew we had seen something mind-boggling and we talked until midnight mm -hmm. and hearing the other guys they'd had much different experiences from me some of them had gotten to the compound where the prisoners were others had been to the crematorium and and see, I had missed all that. And so I was bound and determined to uh, get out there in the first thing in the morning and have a look around. Well, it turns out, I've often always wondered why we never did guard duty at Dachau that night. That's the only time you're any, I was anywhere near the front line. We didn't do guard duty. And I learned afterwards that we had gone in to relieve I Company, but then that evening, Things were changed. I company it was determined was just a basket case and was unable to return to fighting. And so they brought in another company, I think L Company, to relieve them, and they relieved us. And so we didn't have to do the guard duty that night. And we're out of there before dawn the next morning to catch up because I've learned afterwards that the other platoons of C Company, once they were relieved, hiked back to the town of Dachau and slept there that night. Why we slept in the camp, I, I, I don't know. But we had some catching up to do. That was about a mile away. And we're walking very briskly to catch up 
on the morning, and this is now April 30th, we're approaching Munich, and all of a sudden we come to a picket fence. It's about seven feet high, and if nothing had happened, we would have just walked on by, but it turned out to be the perimeter of the largest of the Dachau subcamps. It was called Alach, A-L-L-A-C-H, and all of a sudden the prisoners realized we were the U.S. Army, and the celebration began and there are no guards, and there are no corpses. It's a totally different experience than the day before. And the first thing we do is give them all of our K-rations, give them all our cigarettes, all our candy. There was a potato cellar there, and we let them out to get the potatoes. And then our officers said, hey, you can't let them out. They had to keep them in there. They were afraid they would, if they got out, they'd start running around the whole community. And so we... We got the potatoes, and we threw them over the fence, and one of our guys threw a cigar over the fence. <laughs> that was the darndest fight. <laughs> and when that fight was over, the cigar was in shreds, so we, we didn't do that anymore. When we were there for maybe two, three hours, I talked to an older prisoner. He told me he was a physician from Warsaw. He said that because he was a doctor, he had been treated deferentially, and they, they let him actually even be a doctor. You know, he, didn't, he, didn't, he didn't have any equipment or anything. But we were relieved after two or three hours and then resumed the march on uh, Munich. But an interesting thing happened there. One of our sergeants befriended one of the prisoners that day who talked English. They talked for about an hour. About three days later, we, we get to Munich that day. We're approaching Munich with great apprehension. We think it's going to be another Nuremberg, or we'd had three guys killed. It turns out that along the way, we learned that the early units of the 45th and the 42nd had that morning had had met very little resistance. And so we knew we just hiked right into Munich. Well, about three days later, this prisoner shows up in Munich. He just walks away from a lock. Uh-huh. <laughs> and he wants to join C Company and fight, fight the Germans. Wow. <laughs> the war, it's the last week of the war. But he fight. And so Sergeant Bill puts a uniform on him. And, and for the four months of that summer, he functioned as a member. It was Anton Javorsi. He went all the way to France with us almost got on the ship with us to come home and, and Bill thought that I don't maybe maybe we shouldn't do that. <laughs> well the guy emigrates to America afterwards. One of Bill's guys in New York helps him find his father. His father had abandoned the family in Budapest and he found his father and reconciled with him. Mm. He married, had a very good business, and at his wedding they met a guy who had been a guard at a lock. He had befriended him as a prisoner, kept in touch with him after the war, and sent him an airline ticket to come to his wedding. Well, he had a very good relationship with Bill that whole time in America, just from that hour that started at a lock. And I'm still in contact with that fellow's cousin. She's she's lives up in uh, Portland, and she's active in the Jewish community up there, and she's still doing a lot of research on on the family. Well, then on the, uh, it's now the 30th of April, and we arrived that night right in 
downtown Munich. And the next morning, May 1st, it's immediately announced the 45th Division will occupy Munich. And that meant for us the war was over. We had been mad that we hadn't been given Nuremberg. Although I'm glad we didn't because Nuremberg was total rubble. Munich was in pretty good shape. And they say that for housing, you are to commandeer private homes. So we, Ben Ewing, the platoon sergeant and I, went up and knocked on the door. Very nice home, very lovely section of Munich. And Baroness von Schachter comes to the door. And Ben says, ma'am, we're going to billet troops in your home. We'll give your family one bedroom in the kitchen, and we're going to take the rest of the house. She said, okay. She spoke very good English. And we went across the street to the Steimer house. Herr Steimer, Frau Steimer come to the door with two very good-looking teenage daughters. And Ben says, <laughs> one of the daughters speaks English, and Ben says, the same spiel, we're going to billet troops in your home. And the daughter translates this to her father, and her father goes, nine, 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 nine. <laughs> well, I had a reunion with Ben Ewing after the war, and I said, Ben, do you remember what you said? When he, he said, no. And he said, no. I said, well, I was standing right there. I remember you said to the daughter, you explained to your father that if he's not satisfied with this arrangement, we'll take your entire house, and your family can go live at Dachau. Well, of course, that ended the conversation, but that'll tell you the attitude that exists. We were less than 48 hours away from Dachau at that point, and nobody was about to take any gruff from the Germans. Well, how things changed. For the next month, our platoon is split up among those two in a third house, mm -hmm. and you're, li you're living with these families, and I celebrate my 20th birthday in this, the home of Baroness's home, and those people baked a cake and put decorated it with American flags. Everybody got to be very chummy, and there were guys that were shacked up with uh, with uh, women. The attraction for the women was the guys would take food home for them. Well, the first day, the Baroness came down the stairs. The Germans had to turn in their weapons, mm -hmm. handguns, rifles, shotguns. And she's carrying a beautiful 12-gauge double-barreled shotgun. And she says, Sergeant Doherty, I have to turn this in. If you'd like it, take it. So I took it and mailed it home. Well, it, I fired it once just to make sure it worked. It had a very unusual mechanism. and But otherwise, that shotgun just stood in my closet for 50 years. And finally, in the 1990s, this is almost 50 years later, I decided I'll try to put it back in the hands of the family. It's time for our final break, but when we come back, we'll hear how those efforts unfolded decades after World War II. If you head over to hometownheroesradio.com, you'll find photos of Dan Doherty and read some of what he's written about some very meaningful reunions with people with whom his paths crossed during the fateful final days of World War II in Europe. Hometown Heroes will be right back after this. Ever feel like that dollar just doesn't go as far anymore? Well, join the club. 
Actually, you really should join the club. I mean, join the more than 350,000 members of EECU, the not-for-profit credit union now in 12 California counties. Free online and mobile banking, more than 30,000 co-op ATMs, and not just fair, but fantastic rates on auto loans, mortgages, and home equity lines of credit. Go to myeecu.org to become a member today, or just call this number, 1-800-538-3328. When times get tough and budgets get tight, a lot of businesses start slashing their marketing budgets, which all too often turns into a costly mistake. Instead, what if you could customize that investment to zero in on your target audience with surgical precision? And why am I saying what if? Because I already know you can with search strategy marketing. It's not about how much you spend, it's about the strategy behind it. And Search Strategy Marketing is ready to prove it to you with a free, no-obligation assessment of your current efforts. Learn how to outrank your competition with a free, customized action plan just for Hometown Heroes listeners. Just go to HometownHeroesRadio.com and click on that light bulb logo for Search Strategy Marketing. It doesn't matter what your business is, Search Strategy Marketing can lead you to the best way to connect with your customers. So look for that light bulb logo today at hometownheroesradio.com and plug into the power that can take your business to the next level. Honoring veterans from sea to shining sea, you're listening to Hometown Heroes with Paul Leffler, brought to you by this local station and its sponsors and presented everywhere on the air and online by Provident Payments, one of the fastest growing payment consultants in America. Connect today at ProvidentPayments.com. Welcome back to Hometown Heroes, wrapping up our two-part conversation with Dan Doherty, 98 years old of Fairfield, California, originally from Austin, Minnesota. Dan played a little college basketball there in Minnesota for Carleton College after coming home from World War II. One of the items that made it home from Europe with him was a double-barreled shotgun that a German baroness had surrendered to the young American. And when we left off, Dan had mentioned that decades later, he felt compelled to try to return that gun to its family of origin. Well, I write to Munich City Hall, and I remembered the address of the home and the name, and I remembered the name of the girl across the street. <laughs> and Munich wrote back with a bill for $8 <laughs> that they couldn't find any member of the family, but they, f- they found the girl. And so I wrote to her, and she writes right back, and she says, the, the fellow you want is living in the house. He, he's now married, has three children. I write to him. He was five years old living in the house when we were there. I don't remember him, mm-hmm. but he was there. And I write to him and I say, I have your grandfather's shotgun. If you'd like it, I'll mail it to you. He said, like it, we'll come and get it. <laughs> it was a very affluent family. His wife was a doctor and he was a professor and they've traveled all over the world. And the next summer they flew to Denver and hired a car and then drove all through the Southwest and came up the California coast to Marin where we were living. And we had a return of the shotgun party. And uh, my wife had a very nice occasion. And they put the shotgun in their suitcase and went home. Well, this last April, I'm invited as a guest of the Germans to the 78th anniversary. And so I write to the von Schaffenberg that we're coming. And 
they say, well, come, come to the house. And so there are nine members of our family in our group. And that night we show up and it's Wolf's 83rd birthday. (laughs) (laughs) And he occupies the second floor of the house and his son family has the first floor. And we had a very lovely evening with them. They got out the shotgun. It's still there. We showed it. It's all rusted shut. No, You can't even open it up anymore. But our kids established a very nice relationship with his children, and I'm sure they're going to continue that through the years. So hmm. a little bridge of the generations. So you got to sleep in the same house that you had slept well, in? we didn't sleep in the house, but we had a party in the house. Uh-huh. We were staying in a hotel in downtown Munich for three nights, and then we stayed in a hotel in, in Dachau for four nights Well, for the uh, 78th. We were invited to the 75th in 2020, and the 30 members of my family and friends were going to accompany uh-huh. me. And we had... 20 of us in the family had reservations afterwards to have a week's trip on the Rhine, and that was April of 2020. Well, in March, COVID hits, and at the very last minute, everything got canceled. All those reservations, everything got canceled. And so I understood there were about a dozen of us liberators who were going to be there in 2020. I had been asked to speak at one of the programs. So when kind of a surprise when in early this year we got an invitation and there were only two of us showed up. Two liberators. One uh, Bud Gauze from the 42nd Division and myself and about uh, 15 uh, prisoners. One of the prisoners is from Calistoga. It's an hour from here. He's, he's a year older than I am. He I'll be 99 this year. He'll be 100. And he's been back to several anniversaries. And he's and he went last year, and he's going again with his son this year. I guess the question is, why is it so important? You know, why why does this matter so much that you would travel back across the world to be there for an anniversary to keep this history alive? Why do we need to understand what happened then and remember it? Well... Dachau is uh, historically uh, very important. In the course of 12 short years, Hitler's agents systematically murdered 21 million innocent men, women, and children, including 6 million Jews. And the SS was a large part of that. It's one of the largest organized criminal gangs in the history of the world, and Dachau was the first camp to be organized. When Hitler took power, Hindenburg was still president, Hindenburg, and he was, Hitler was ch- chancellor, and the Reichstag fire happened, and the Nazis blamed the communists for it, and Hitler got Hindenburg to sign a decree that gave the state unlimited, virtually unlimited power to just abrogate civil liberties and rights. And Hindenburg signed that, and the Nazis used that to begin the roundup of the opponents of National Socialism. Mm -hmm. And they 
started rounding them up all over Germany, the socialists, the communists, Jews, Catholic leaders, Protestant leaders, and it just flooded the jails of Germany. And they started opening camps. And in Munich, Himmler, the head of the SS, was, in, was now had been appointed police president. The Nazis, one of the first things Hitler did was put Nazis in charge of police wherever they could. Himmler opened the first concentration camp at an old abandoned powder factory near the town of Dachau. It was a mile away. Today, the town of Dachau is built right up to the camp. It's quite a lovely little village. But it represented the first effort. The first four prisoners killed at Dachau were Jews. When we liberated it, less than 10% of the surviving prisoners were Jews. Most of them were, the largest group were Poles. Every Every ethnic group, nationality in Europe, including six Americans, were 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 at, at Dachau, and uh, and so going there when you when you think of it historically, it, it was just it was a big big part of my life and um, a big part of the of the tragedy that was the Third Reich. Yeah. Uh, I've spent a lot of time since the war on the question of how is it that the most educated, most religious, most churched country in the world could produce and sustain the Third Reich? Mm. And it's a very difficult question. And uh, so I've I've spent a lot of time reading about the SS and uh, dang it, I've in the 1990s, I just ignored the war up until the 1990s, but a fellow interested me in going to a reunion of my regiment, and I went and I continued to go. I got really interested, and I tracked down 75 guys wow. who had been in C Company. That hmm. took a big effort. I made a hundred of telephone calls across the country. I put out a newsletter for them. And I got a lot of very informed people to write articles about interesting things that happened at, during the war, and I have have all that, and I've still got a lot of contacts from that. And the result, I've educated myself about the event and our participation in it. And as far as I know, I'm a, I'm not the last member of C Company. But we don't know because when we were all discharged, we went our separate ways. Some of us ended up in the Alumni Association attending reunions, but most of them didn't. And somewhere out there, there are some of these guys. I, I have a computer that does a weekly Google search of the name Dachau, and it picks up anything where Dachau is mentioned in print newspapers and college papers and stuff. And so I I look at that every week looking for maybe some of, see some of the obituaries of C Company guys or, or some other guys that are honored and I've made some very interesting contacts through through those. Well and 
I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I, I think I, I hear an undertone through all of this that you've invested so much of your later years in learning about this and connecting with others who were there. Is that driven by a motivation to make sure this isn't forgotten and even worse, that people don't try to deny it happened? Well, uh, I don't worry about the deniers. The, this is the most documented the Holocaust is the most documented crime of the millennium, and uh, there will always be kooks out on the margins, but up against all the documentation. I, I, don't, I don't worry that. I, I think this is my, my efforts, I think, is my way of my emotional involvement in, in the fact I realized that coming up on that train was one of the real big events of my life. We lost, a, my wife and I lost a 12-year-old son uh, in the 60s. And, uh, you know, losing a child is just a devastating experience for parents. And later, I, I was talking it out with a therapist. I discovered during that process that I was still carrying some baggage about the corpses. And I talked that out and cried on the couch about that. I think that's one reason why I can talk about it. Uh, now, there are guys that say, oh, it's, it's so bad I can't talk about it. Well, hell, hell I can talk about it. But uh, I, I think it's probably my contribution is to just to know as much as I can and put as much together, and I'm still trying to put things together. I just found a, one of the newspaper articles was in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel about a Holocaust survivor who was on a death march that left Dachau three days before the liberation. Mm -hmm. And they were found below Munich. Well, I knew that a unit of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team, the Japanese-American group, had come upon that. And so I wrote to him. I wrote to him about something else, but it turns out that that march was made up of 2,000 Russian prisoners and 2,000 Jews. And his part of the march, when it ended, they came upon American tanks with Caucasian GIs. <laughs> but the, when you read the 442nd, it's a, really the 522nd Field Artillery Battalion, when you read their account, uh, he said they came upon the Russian prisoners at a little different village, just two kilometers. Wait, but it was the same march. Yeah. And they, but it's a very interesting story. And uh, the uh, Holocaust Center in Milwaukee is very interested in it. And uh, those are the kind of things that keep popping up. Well, I just want to say thank you. Thank you for serving our country. Thank you for the contributions your family has made uh, for our freedom. And thank you for doing what you just told us about, for keeping this history alive and educating the rest of us. Is there anything that I didn't ask you about that you think is important for us to know? No. <laughs> I think we pretty well covered it. Yeah. Is there something as you look forward to your 99th birthday that you would say you're most proud of or most thankful for? Well, I, I, my, my resolution when started this year was to make it to 2025 because then in that year I'll be a hundred so right now my new goal is to make it to a hundred but 
Well, see, my my wife will be 98 next month, February, and I'll be 99 in May, and uh, we don't drive anymore, so we it's not as easy getting around as it used to be, but we're still in pretty reasonably good health. And we're going to pray it stays that way for Dan and Norma Doherty as they approach those upcoming birthdays, and we'll look forward to celebrating that milestone century mark for Dan in 2025, which will also mark the 80th anniversary of the liberation of Dachau. Again, if you'd like to read some of Dan's extensive writing about his company's experience there and the connections and developments that followed, you can visit hometown hometownheroesradio.com or pull up the Hometown Heroes page on Facebook. Thanks so much for listening to Hometown Heroes today. I'm Paul Leffler reminding you again that freedom is not free. To let Paul know about a veteran in your life, visit hometownheroesradio.com and click on Suggest a Veteran. Today's program has been brought to you by Provident Payments. Give your business the edge only their personalized service can deliver at ProvidentPayments.com.